First John chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. It's an interesting chapter, chapter 5. I, I've been kind of stuck in it now for a month, and, and we'll get out of it someday. This is, this is a terrible message. Uh, way, way too much scripture, way too complicated, and too much information. Uh, I, I often lament my, my pastor in Memphis. He had a big sign right in front of his studies that said, resist the temptation to tell it all. And all I can say is when we leave here, know that I have edited this thing down from nine pages. So uh, I'm making progress, but I really need about three more days to get this down to three pages. It's currently at five, and it's way, way too much information. Uh, chapter, uh, the chapter, interestingly enough, has seven things in here John says we know. And uh, does that way to show up there? Oh, yeah, you can read that. Well, maybe Linda can't, but some of you can it says, uh, to know with settled intuitive knowledge. It's to come to know uh, oida uh, in the Greek. And he's seven things that we know. We know now twice it's in a, in a different form. And, and, and the form is with a purpose that you would know. So in every case, it's the same idea of settled intuitive knowledge. We know this in our hearts, in other words. We, we just know. You know, for God so loved that we know that God loves us. So there's seven things that we know. And, of course, in this message, in this chapter, there's one thing we don't know. We don't know what the sin and the death is. We just don't understand this verse at all. So, obviously, I'll talk more about that than the other. We know we have eternal life. These things have I written unto you, John writes, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know. That's, that's that purpose with a subjunctive clause. That you may know. This is the purpose of my writing. That you may know you have eternal life. And that you may have a settled in your heart assurance that we have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of his son. We know that God hears our prayers. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, we went over all this last week, so there's no need for me to spend time on it. We know God answers our prayers. And we know that if he hears us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have those petitions that we desired of him. We know we can't remain in sin. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, this may be next week. I'm not sure about that yet. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Sounds like a good sermon to me. We know that we are of God, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And finally, uh, we know that he is true, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him. That is true. I should have highlighted that. And we are in him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. And the seventh thing that we know, we know that we are in him. That was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, that we would be in him and he could be in us. And we know we are in him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Now, what we don't know, you know, if any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. And there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Where am I at now? I'm at nine. Now, the main point here is not the sin unto death. The main point is if we see a brother, and again, that whole brother thing, when teaching in his day, the brother, the word brother, Adolphus, includes the ladies. He would never address a sermon to the ladies. They wouldn't even be sitting on the same side of the church. Nonetheless, it would apply to you. So it, it would be nothing wrong with saying a fellow believer, 
if you interpret this verse that brother means fellow believer, and we'll get into that later, but the point is we should pray for one another when we see them sin. Now, this is the main point of this verse. We get hung up on this sin and the death. We go, well, what is that? It's not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know what it is. And we lose track of the fact that when we see our brother or our sister fall into sin, God expects us to pray for them. Now, you notice that it does not say call the preacher and report him or her. It does not tell you to call fellow Christians and share with them. Have you heard that brother Bob is back on the sauce again? You know, it's not, you're not supposed to do that. It says when you see, when you see him sin, pray for them. He's not telling us either. Also, he's also not telling us to confront that person. Interestingly enough, what we're supposed to do is pray for them. Pray for them. Go into your prayer closet, keep it to yourself, and pray for them. Now, Matthew 18 does tell us to confront our brother, but the only time we confront our brother, you'll notice this in verse 15. This is this whole segment in Matthew chapter 18 where we deal with people who have wronged us. And when we wrong us, the first thing we do is we go to that brother and we confront them. The next thing we do if they won't hear us, Jesus said, if it doesn't go well, we take two or three others from the church. And it makes it a little more seriously. And then if they refuse to hear those, that group that comes with you, then you take it before the church. But that's if the brother shall trespass against you. Now, if you just see me doing something wrong, well, I'm different. I'm the pastor because you should report anything you see me doing wrong to the church. So that's really a bad example. But if you see someone else doing something wrong, a brother or sister in the church doing something wrong, you're to pray for them. You're to pray for them. You're not supposed to confront them. But if, if they've trespassed against you, go and tell them this fault between thee and him alone, Jesus said. And he, if he shall hear thee, you, you have gained your brother. Of course, if he doesn't, then you take two or three. And if he, they don't hear them, you take it before the church. Now the point is, John is telling us to pray for them. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, I wish he hadn't said that, it just gets us all confused, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin. Of course, the advantage of these kind of verses is it gives people like me something to do, right? I mean, it's great. I can try to explain something that no one has ever figured out for 2,000 years, but I'm going to stand up here and tell you the answer. <laughs> Fool that I am, right? If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask and give him life for his sin. Now remember, pray for them. You see someone in trouble, pray for them. Don't confront them. Don't report them. Pray for them. You know, the context here. Uh, is a brother seems to imply when you read this if you see a brother sin a sin it implies that that person is saved it implies that that person is a fellow believer in Christ but we don't know that so there's a lot here that we don't know but James does the same thing he says a very similar thing he says confess your faults one to another and pray for one another this is the whole message really the sin and the death is really a sidetrack for us uh, it, it, it's it's a rabbit hole that uh, you can you can spend weeks in. Believe me, it's remarkable. Uh, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, healed in this context is the idea of being restored to spiritual fellowship. Right? It's a spiritual healing, and I I'm, I know I'm dragging this out a little bit, but the, but the purpose is to maintain specific definitions based on the context. The context here may be healed. 
At another place, he says, if you're sick, call for the elders. James says this, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. That word save kind of implies to heal, physical healing. In this case, the healing appears to be a spiritual restoration. Confess your faults one to another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You want to see how it's centered up there. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now the main point, I've repeated it three times now, is that John is encouraging us to pray for one another when we see them in trouble. Actually, we should pray for one another before we see them in trouble. And we, we do that on Wednesday nights. Join us Wednesday nights on Zoom. We'd love to have you. Uh, we have a great time of prayer. Uh, we've, we've given up a little bit of our, our little circle study, a Bible study. We usually used to do 30 minutes of Bible study and then, uh, and then 30 minutes of prayer. But we've gotten in the habit now of sharing prayer requests and uh, a little bit of gossip for 30 minutes and then uh, praying for the other 30 minutes. But the main point here is John is encouraging us to pray. However, there appears to be a sin committed by others in our fellowship that we shouldn't pray for. And we don't really know what it is. We don't know, when you read this verse, we don't know who this brother refers to. Is it another believer? Is it a fellow Jew? Or is it a lost person, a person of the world? We don't know what the word death means. A sin unto death. We don't mean know if it means physical death. You know, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Or if it means spiritual death. And we don't know if giving him life means physical life or spiritual health or eternal life. Everything hinges on definitions. We don't know what the sin unto death is. And we don't know why we shouldn't pray for them. I had a... Uh, I had a fellow pastor post that October the 6th is the anniversary of William Tyndall's execution for the crime of being the first person to translate the scriptures into English. And the last prayer he prayed, I think, would have violated this verse. In that I think that the king at that time was committing a sin unto death. Whether or not he was a brother in the faith, we don't know. But William Tyndall said, as his dying breath, they were in the process of choking him to death, and then they were going to burn his body at the stake. Some say he was already dead. The English were great for half killing you and then burning you, so I don't really know what happened. I don't really want to know what happened, actually. But uh, the last prayer that they heard him utter was, God, change the mind, change the heart of the King of England. And it depends on what history you read. I read one that said two weeks later, and I read another one that said two years later, the king authorized the first English printing of the uh, Bible, the first printing of the Bible in English, uh, in opposition to what the church had recommended. And consequently, his prayer was answered. Whether that was a violation of this verse, I don't know. Uh, you know, we also know that Jesus did not pray for the world in his prayer for his disciples. He said, I pray for them, the disciples. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And so there's this certain amount of prayer that, that it appears, a certain type of prayer. I don't know what the answer, I don't, know, I don't even know what words there are uh, to describe it. But there appears to be a prayer 
a certain type of sin that a man will commit which we should not pray for. This is the verse again. I'm going to read just the second half. There is a sin unto death. I should have just eliminated and just put the second half up. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, I know I'm going to say this multiple times, but it does not say we're forbidden to pray for this person. If we could figure out what the sin was. It does not say we're forbidden to pray for them. It just says there's no promise that God will answer this prayer. So if we're talking about our jailers or our torturers or the people that betray us, if we are talking about these people, I would recommend you pray for them anyway and just hope that God answers that prayer. I don't know. Now I'm going to share with you, <laughs> I had a professor in seminary that did everything in folds, the threefold view, the twofold view, the fivefold view. All our notes were folded. <laughs> And all our tests were folded. I'm going to share with you four views, uh, none of which solve all the problems. Don't answer all the questions. And then I'm going to attempt to share with you what, what I think the answer to the dilemma we face is or the question of what is this sin unto death. Uh, Tertullian taught, uh, and the Catholics followed him, uh, that the sin unto death is some terrible sin that God cannot and will not forgive. Uh, Tertullian taught that some sins such as murder, idolatry, fraud, denial of Christ, blasphemy, adultery, fornication could not be committed by true Christians and that God would not forgive these sins. And that's pretty much, the, what do they call that? They have venial and they have, what are the Catholics? Somebody, ex-Catholic tell me, you got two types of sin. Anyway, there's one that can be forgiven. Mortal and venial sins. Thank you. Venial can be forgiven. Mortal cannot. Thank you. Um, the thing is, the Bible makes no such distinction as that that we're aware of. Uh, and if Tertullian's list were applied to those in the Bible, if you think about it, David, Solomon, Peter, and Paul would all be excluded from heaven and would be in hell right now. So Jesus said all manner of sin can be forgiven among men except for the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That narrows the field down quite a bit, right? Um, and that's a very specific sin that I'll get into in a minute. One view is some terrible sin. That's Tertullian's view. The second view is the sin of the death is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus warned the Pharisees about this sin in Matthew chapter 12. And he said it could never be forgiven. Now what we believe is Jesus was referring to the continued willful rejection of him and ascribing his miracles to Satan. So at one point in Matthew chapter 13, I guess it's Matthew 12. Uh, yeah, it's Matthew 13, he turns away from Israel. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was doing a miracle and they said that he's doing these miracles by the power of Beelzebub, what in our, in our context it would be in the power of Satan. And it's attributing the works of Satan and I'm sorry, yeah, attributing the works of Satan to the Lord Jesus Christ or the works of Jesus Christ to the power of Satan might be a better way to say that. It's saying that Jesus is not serving the one true God. It's the denial of the deity of Christ. Now that plays out in a lot of ways and I think that's part, I think that's certainly a part of what the sin and the death is. So I, I, I kind of hold this view loosely. Uh, I, I tie it together with apostasy, my view. 
Uh, John Stott of the Church of England, a famous uh, author, theologian, argues that it is such a hardened, willful rejection of known truth that constitutes the sin unto death. It's hardened, you've made up your mind, it's willful, and it's a rejection of Jesus Christ. He also argues that both groups of sinners here are unbelievers. So both both brothers in verse, what verse are we in? Is it 16? Yeah, verse 16. Both references to the word brother are unbelievers, which is, it just doesn't fit the context to me, but that's what he's arguing. He argues that both groups of sinners are unbelievers because God will give life to those committing the sin. You see where the de definition of brother and the definition of life becomes a real issue in this thing. You know, if you're talking about eternal life, obviously the brother has to be lost because God wouldn't have to give him life. But if you're talking about health or strength or healing, that's a whole different thing. So the, the definition of these words are critical. It implies, John says, John Stott says that they were spiritually dead. For those who sin not unto death, those not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, this is John Stott continuing, believers may pray and God will save the sinner. God will give them life. For those blaspheming the Spirit, there's no promise of life in this response. There are several problems with this view. You have to understand brother to refer to an unbeliever, which doesn't make sense. And the promise seems to guarantee salvation for anyone that you pray for who has not yet committed the unpardonable sin. We've never experienced that in our lives, that every lost person we pray for gets saved. So it doesn't really fit the experience that we have in our life. So this definition, in my mind, falls short. And um, I wish I could tell you his name. I've just completely, it's completely left my mind. Uh, I'll, I'll share it with you. Steve something. Uh, he also adds, uh, God has saved some pretty hardened unbelievers. I mean, when you think about it, you know. The Apostle Paul actually participated in the execution of one of, one of the followers of Jesus Christ. That, that's a pretty hardened, uh, willful, blasphemous act. And yet God saved him. And... Uh, Paul calls himself a blasphemer in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Well, the third point, the first point is some terrible sin that can't be forgiven. The other is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The third view is it refers to apostasy from the faith. That means turning away from, rejecting. Some say true believers can lose their salvation and they believe they can apostatize. I don't believe this. This goes against the truth that God keeps all who are saved, saved, God promises to keep us saved. So I kind of reject that application of that point. But the Bible does describe a, a people group who make a profession of faith. There are people who call themselves Christians. They claim to have accepted Christ. They claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do appear so for a while. But eventually they turn from the faith. And we understand it, good Calvinists that we are, that that indicates they were never truly saved in the first place. Rather than falling from grace, we believe their actions just revealed what the truth was in their hearts. Now, 2 Peter 2.1. The Bible does describe those who make a profession of faith and look like believers for a while, but then they turn from the faith, showing that they were not truly born again. And this is Peter talking about a similar subject. And the, the Bible really holds some pretty harsh language for these people, which kind of leans me in the direction that since the context of 1 John is an argument, a polemic against 
these false teachers, particularly the antinomian Gnostics, um, it's probable that this reference to the, the this unforgivable sin is probably a reference to the false prophets as well. Peter writes, but there were false prophets also among the people. Now he's that's a reference to the Old Testament. There were false prophets also among the people. He's talking about the Jews in the Old Testament. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, this is Peter prophesying that in the church there will be false teachers who privately, in private or quietly or undermindedly, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy. i got to watch where I put that arrow. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat us as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Now, these guys were teaching that the rapture had come. This was the whole chaos of, that was strewn amongst the people of Thessalonica. And of course, in John's area, the problem was these Gnostics who claimed that Jesus wasn't the actual Son of God in a direct sense. He wasn't God incarnate. He was rather a number of emanations, they used the term, away from God. There were steps between him and God, or he wasn't true God. Uh, two heresies of John's day. Not that they're the only ones that have her heresies. Now Peter writes again in chapter 2 of these, uh, of these guys. Again he writes of these false teachers. The context of 1 John appears to me to be the reason for this phrase that we're getting this sin unto death. Now, John is not saying that we should not pray for these apostates. This is the third time I've said this. That we should... He's not saying we should not pray for them. He's just saying that it's probably a waste of time. Now, the fourth view is the sin unto death is physical death, inflicted on believers who persist in some particular sin. And, they, of course, they get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul mentions some who have died because they were taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In this view, uh, this is interpreting John as saying that the ministry of prayer, some Christians have gone too far. God will not turn his judgment back. So if, in the particular instance of the Lord's Supper, people would come and they would bring what we would call a covered dish supper, but they would have scrumptious, delicious foods and they'd put that all in front of their plates and the poor Christians would bring their boiled beans or their cornbread and their beans and cornbread or their grits and that's, that's all they had. And Paul was highly offended and he tells the church that you have homes to eat in. Uh, what you're doing is not celebrating the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is offending the church. And when you offend the church, you're offending the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you offend the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to punish you. And some of you, Paul said, he's made sick. And some of you have even died. Or Paul said, are asleep, fallen, fallen into death. You know. Now, the problem with this interpretation of this 
1 Corinthians explanation of the sin and the death is, how are we going to know when a brother or sister has gone so far that God's going to take them out? We, we don't know. It's like, how would you know if they've committed that sin until they're already dead and then it's too late to pray for them? So that interpretation doesn't make sense. So really for me, two and three make the most sense. I'm inclined to believe that number two, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and number three, rejecting the teachings of Jesus and becoming a false apostle are combined. I believe that's the explanation of it. I believe they're closest to what John is telling us. There are, in fact, people who have made a profession of faith, and they've joined the church, and they're active in that church. But they argue at every opportunity against the teachings of the Scriptures. It doesn't matter what the point of view is. They just find some reason they don't accept, they don't surrender to, they're unwilling to acknowledge or willing to accept what the Bible teaches. It really doesn't matter what the particular scripture is. There are people that reject it because it doesn't fit their lifestyle. So rather than surrender to the will of God or the word of God, they reject it. Now that's bad. I don't really think that's gone too far though. I think you can still pray for that person. But what happens when they refuse to submit to the words of Jesus and the disciples and then they begin to encourage others to do so? They begin to become false teachers, teaching a false narrative and leading people astray. It's my opinion that that is the sin of the death. They've gone too far. And the New Testament reserves the harshest language against these apostates. And when you look at the words that, that Peter and 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 uh, Paul used against these people. Uh, John isn't quite as clear, but when you use the words against, uh, that they've used against them, you, you see the anger that they hold. And this is Peter's, uh, I have six verses of his. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise government, despise control. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities, where it's angels which are greater in power and might bring not a railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, these false teachers, that's what Peter is talking about here. These false teachers as natural brute beasts like animals, he said, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they don't understand and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the, rear, the reward of unrighteousness as they, they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. I mean, you know, when you first read those first four verses, you think, my God, these people aren't saved. Obviously, they're not saved, but they're feasting with you. In other words, Peter is saying these worldly, uh, uncaring, lost, false teachers are actually sharing the Lord's table with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. Jude, when he writes about them, interestingly enough, that second chapter of Second Peter is remarkably parallel to Jude. Jude only has one chapter. But it's, it's a debate of who, who wrote first. 
We don't know whether Jude wrote verse and Peter read his work and got excited about it and wrote his chapter or Peter wrote verse or Jude, and Jude, Jude, this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, half brother of Jesus. Uh, uh, well, Jude read Peter and then he wrote his chapter out. We don't know. But describing them the same way, Jude writes raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You couldn't read a gloomier passage of Scripture if you tried. Paul tells us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together and in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one to Satan. We don't really know what that means. We could actually spend the time stumbling around up here trying to explain that. We, we, near as I can figure, delivering such a one to Satan means kick him out of the church. Just don't let them think they're part of the fellowship when they're not. To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, these, these sins that I'm describing as the, the uh, sin unto death, this idea of blasphemy or false teaching, we have all persisted in. We have all committed these sins. It's, uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time in my days before I met Christ making fun of Christians. I've certainly said and taught and, and done things that uh, made light of the person of Christ. I, all of us in the days before we came to Christ are guilty of these sins. They're not unforgivable in that sense. We've persisted in arguing against the teaching of scriptures. I remember when Linda and I were dating, she was she would go to great efforts to try to uh, share the scriptures with me, and I would take great delight in twisting up her mind and turning her words against her and, and proving to her that she didn't know what she was talking about. And, and I've committed this sin unto death clearly. But when we met Jesus, we confessed these sins, and everything changed. And I love this passage of Scripture because it lists a whole bunch of things that many of us have participated in, if not all of us. Paul writing to the Corinthians, which was, uh, Chuck Missler used to say, uh, first and second Californians. Uh, he, he ministered in California, and he thought the Corinthian church was very close to the lifestyle of the Californians. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a terrible list because we've all participated in some of those things. And he acknowledged it in verse 11, and that's what I like about this passage. And such were, past tense, some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It isn't that people that commit these sins can't be saved. It's that people who persist in these sins and claim that they are saved are committing a sin that God cannot forgive. I think. Hmm. At least, clearly, these false teachers 
should be marked. If there's someone in the congregation that finds you find dividing and arguing and complaining about scriptures and questioning and questioning and questioning. Paul says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. Mark them which cause offenses. Offenses is the trip on a trap that causes it to close. It's the idea of causing someone to stumble. So someone who comes into the church arguing and causing divisions, someone who comes into the church and whose teachings have caused others to stumble, mark them that cause offenses that are contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Doesn't say beat them up. You know, in chapter 70, he says, deliver them to Satan. That was the guy that was sleeping with his father's wife. Kick him out of the church. This one says, mark them and avoid them. At no point does it really say confront them and beat them up or anything. For they are such that serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They are such that serve not, I should have underlined that, our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So Paul says, mark them and avoid them and deliver them to Satan. John says, if I'm understanding this verse 16 correctly, don't even pray for them. It's a waste of time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. And I know this is a hard passage and too much information. Help us, Lord, to sort through only those things that matter. Help us to take home only those things that are effective. And help us, Father, to know how to behave in a time when our world is increasingly filled with deniers and naysayers, questioners, and those that would cause us to stumble. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.